All right, hello and welcome to the Faultline podcast, the audio companion to the weekly B2B publication analysing disruption in the media and entertainment ecosystem. My name's Tommy Flanagan, I'm the editor of Faultline and this week we have not one, but two very special guests for you. Lingering in the background we have my colleague Quentin Vidberg. Hi everyone. Who's what, five months into the game now? Exactly, five months old getting some grey hair. (laughs) And for the headline act, we have an executive with an extraordinary resume who is currently spearheading some of the most bleeding edge technologies in CDNs, caching and server power efficiency. Internally, we call him the CTO who never sleeps (laughs) because he somehow manages to reply to our annoying questions at a moment's notice, no matter what side of the planet the job takes him to. So please welcome Frank Miller, Chief Technology Officer at Varnish Software. How are you today, Frank? Oh, absolutely well and glad to meet everybody. And thank you for joining us. I am wearing my Varnish Software socks, <laughs> especially for this, which unfortunately being an audio platform, our listeners can't appreciate. Um, are you contractually obligated to wear yours too, Frank? Or are you uh, allowed to mix it up a bit in the sock department? Oh, I can mix it up a bit. When I'm running, I don't wear them. <laughs> That's about it. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. All right. So as is tradition on the Faultline podcast, we kick off by seeing when our guests first appeared in the Faultline archive, which is a treasure trove containing thousands of articles stretching back 21 years. So Frank, you've held a number of C-level roles at a variety of technology companies around the world. Huawei, CenturyLink, Tektronix, Sienna, just to name a few. But it wasn't until you joined Varnish in April 2022 that our paths were fated to meet. And so it was only November 2022 at the Streaming Media West conference in Huntington Beach, California, that we first crossed paths. Right. And consequently, you were first quoted on these very pages. And you may recall I was sat in the front row of your panel session uh, on reducing power consumption, and I was baiting you on <laughs> why this promised uh, academic report you were working on with the KTH Royal Institute was delayed yet again. And, and your response, which which is quoted in Faultline, was, there's only so much pizza I can buy, and people want to take Christmas holidays. So, Which I thought was a great way to make your Faultline debut. <laughs> Fond memories. And I should point out that this is... Uh, this is very different from from Varnish Software's work with Intel, which we'll come on to. Yeah. But you know, I, I understand the KTH academic research has been you know attempting to develop a framework to create mm-hmm. a CO two emissions baseline. So I thought this would be a fitting place to kick off, considering that's how we first kind of crossed mm-hmm. paths and what we first spoke about when we first met, almost exactly a year ago. So now, are you still busy buying pieces? Or can we assume this uh, research is, is lost somewhere in the academic ether? Oh, we have reset expectations. So I have hired <laughs> uh, somebody um, in Stockholm. Um, he was, uh, you know, one of the things he did was help manage the CDN at Telia. So he's directly engaged with KTH. And um, once, I, uh, once I know the timeline, I'm glad to share. And I didn't use the pizza word. <laughs> we, are we still pointing the fingers at the, at the academics then? No, no. Everybody's busy. 
right? So at the end of the day, I mean, you know how it works, right? I mean, academia runs at a different schedule. Um, so it's not a bad schedule. It's just that in the, uh, you know, over here on this side, we, we run a little bit faster. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I, I knew the answer I was going to get, but I thought I had to kick <laughs> off with that question anyway. You know, I, I just had to. Um, yeah, I've got my man in yeah. Stockholm, right? Uh, they've engaged. Um, next time I get to Stockholm, we'll, we'll take a look at this and, and reset. Sounds good. Right, moving on to something a little more tangible is the, the uh, ongoing work with Intel. Um, I know there were uh, a few happy faces in Stockholm earlier this year and some less happy ones in France. When we ran the headline, Varnish Software beats Broadpeak for CDN throughput world record after achieving record throughput of 1.3 terabit per second on a single edge server consuming approximately 1,120 watts. That works out as an unbelievable throughput of 1.17 gigabit per second per watt. That beat out Broadpeak's previous record of 0.8 gigabit per second per watt on a single edge server. And you've just put out some some updated power efficiency benchmarks that bump this up to 1.18 gigabit per second per watt for live streaming and 0.73 gigabit per second per watt for VOD. These are very marginal gains, but gains nonetheless. And to be honest, Frank, I did expect your record to be smashed by now. (laughs) At least, you know, I I haven't seen or heard anything that suggests anyone is coming close to breaking it. Although, you know, I have heard that it's been tricky for vendors to procure Intel's Sapphire Rapids uh, configurations from OEMs. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, holding off the kind of the next leap uh, forward in, in power efficiency. So firstly, has Varnish obtained any Sapphire Rapids? And secondly, um, how long do you think your record might stand for? Have you heard anything that to suggest that any rivals are close to breaking it? I hadn't really heard anything, but I'm, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just glad if the industry, you know, meets us right because it has to be tangible and i thought it was good to just set a moonshot with the intel and the super micro micro team to just kind of get out there and i got to be fully transparent tommy when we had the talk on kth i was like oh my goodness i've i've got to get this absolutely sorted and done (laughs) right because these are real results but in the last bit we decided to take a look back and look across processor families so a um you know a performance record is great but at the end of the day, it's performance and power. So we did bench across multiple processor families, all the way down to the Xeon D for Sapphire Rapids. And what we saw was pretty much we get the same efficiency all the way down to 1U configurations and um, you know entry-level processors. It doesn't quite cross the 1 gigabit per watt barrier as you head towards something like a Xeon D, for instance. But we will continue to work on this. And we are working in both directions, right? There's going to be, I think, um, you, you know, three new releases of um, processor families coming out over the next, you know, year plus from Intel. Um, we will, I, I think we'll pivot and take a look at those, right? Because each one of them comes with a unique, a unique capability, a unique architecture, and we'll see what we can get. You know, I'm going to press C for timeframes. <laughs> well, unfortunately, they're not my timeframes, right? So they're, <laughs> right, they're tied to Intel's timeframes. So, you know, once again, you know, as they come out, we, we will test them. But to circle back to what I said before, 
really at the end of the day, the goal was to provide literally a complete bill of materials across processor families with performance, just to show you know everyone, look, this is not a science experiment. If you're going to invest and build, this is the bomb. Run the software, you'll get the, these results. Got it. Okay, I, I'm I'm conscious that we've gone down a very academic uh, rabbit hole quite early on, so I kind of want to <laughs> step back a little bit for a minute now and and look at the uh, the kind of CDM marketplace from a a high level. And you know, obviously, we've seen major disruption lately with Stackpath falling to Akamai, Edgio's stock price. Um, falling through the floor and most recently Lumen selling all CDN customer contracts to Akamai, which leaves it with a bunch of CDN infrastructure, some uh, 2,400 edge servers in 95 pops in six continents. That's 170 terabit per second of server capacity that apparently no one's interested in. Some of that is going to be picked off and sold, of course, but there is a chance that uh, a share of these physical assets are, are going to be uh, junked ultimately. So as someone uh, who spent two and a half years at CenturyLink before it became Lumen, what's your assessment of Lumen's CDN business? You know, I've heard some strong things about Lumen's CDN software stack in particular. There might still be value there from engineers who worked on it and tweaked it for large object delivery. But I mean, where did it all go wrong for, for Lumen, Frank? Well, I think at the end of the day, right, it's a tough market, right? And as you go through... You know, as you go through being a company, um, it's all about creating new revenue. And the challenge, I think, for Lumen is there was just, you know, accumulated debt, right? Or let's call it, um, you know, and, and what I mean by debt is technical debt. So if you look at somebody who's doing broadband, right, especially with a voice focus, um, you know, L- Lumen with its tier three origins and now with some of the Azure leadership, I, I think wants to be more of a hyperscaler. So you, you have to pivot to where you think you're stronger, we're going to focus, and that's what the focus is for Lumen. They'll focus on, you know, infrastructure and network as a service. So, you know, that's why they sold off assets, like they just closed the deal with Colt, for instance. Um, you know, on infrastructure, they closed the deal with Siri and I think down in Latin America. Neither of which I think include any city and assets. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, I think, you know, as we talked about before, um, there is a lot of pressure in the industry. It's really fast growing. I, I, I think the CAGR uh, growth is about 18% per year. I think if they just looked at their books and decided from the investment perspective, it was probably best and they were going to have a better return in focusing on you know, other areas, right? So they sold the stuff they had when they could get some revenue out of it and they're keenly focused on going the hyperscaler route. Mm-hmm. And you know, from your point of view in the CDN business, that just kind of affirms the shift towards private CDN, yes. telco CDN strategies. Yep. Uh, you know, how does the consolidation of CDNs affect Varnish Software's business going forward? You're not hardware business, you know, yeah. the company name implies that much. Um, but th- this is about, you know, a lot more than legacy hardware. Yeah, I think the strength is, is, is in two areas. If you are a telecom and you decide to bring customers in, at the end of the day, you're probably more closely peered to the end user, right? Not, not, not even yourself, but you, can, you have internet exchanges and you have a unique opportunity like Lumen, for instance, if you have infrastructure as a service with a really tight peering, there's no middleman anymore. So I think that kind of ties into what we talked about before, Tommy, is it's very, right? There's a real cost challenge here. If you can pick your party or right if you can pick a partner like a lumen or a colt or you know some of these other businesses you can now run your private software stack and actually maybe uh 
you know, get the costs back to where they're manageable, right? More choice. Yeah. I'm going to uh, pick out a uh, customer case study here for you now for a bit of flattery. Uh, Tally 2. Right. It's a really uh, uh, interesting case uh, for the private DIY CDN trend. And as an uh, early adopter of the Varnish software product suite back in 2017, Tally 2 was able to transition to a pure streaming-based video strategy just a few months ago. That's kind of similar to what Sky has done in Europe. And we're seeing operators in the US like Wide Open West um, shut down their pay TV businesses. And you know, this is kind of a positive spin on mm. the cord cutting phenomenon, I suppose. You know, it brushes over you know, the millions of lost subscribers and billions of lost dollars. But it also shows that, you know, those operators that were early to IP and in-house mm. CDN can compete in streaming. But I mean, what does that mean for operators who have been slow to make this transition? Is it too late for them to do a tele two, Or is there yeah. hope yet? What is the kind of process of a legacy operator who's been really slow approaches Varnish? Yeah, I think once again, it's if anything, it's kind of highly bespoke, right? So there are some operators, for instance, who do have um, fully depreciated assets, uh, compute assets sitting in data centers. Um, you can leverage something like Varnish, I think, to get a generation or two of life adding you know, on existing infra, right? So I think that's highly bespoke. That's one opportunity. Another opportunity is if you're going to be build greenfield, right? If you're going to build greenfield, um, as you can gain more access to Sapphire Rapid, right? Specs, right? The cost of entry is lower. I mean, you can do, you know, one U and have 800 gigafy on, on one U. Right, and probably get about you know seven hundred gigabits of throughput. That's incredible. So the cost economics mm-hmm. now are not the cost economics that were, you know, back in the days. Right, that drove the industry, like with an Akamai, for instance. So I think there's an opportunity. It's kind of bespoke. Everybody's got a slightly different position, but you can pick and choose your partners. Right, in a hybrid scenario, it, it, it can be public cloud. It can be private cloud. It really doesn't matter. Yeah, but with the consolidation, there is less choice. Yeah, that is true. You know, hopefully some other players do stay in the market, right? Because I think it's good to also have multiple providers just for reliability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of those is uh, Fastly, which we happened to have ran an interview with uh, a few weeks ago where we were told that Fastly has stopped running caching policies exclusively with the Varnish configuration language, yep. the VCL. This was uh, Quentin's interview, yeah. so I'll pass the buck to him to, to follow up here. <laughs> but what I, I wanted to know kind of is how Varnish software is you know, offsetting this loss of business from traditional CDNs like Fastly. Yeah, I think it's two different purposes, right? So from a VCL perspective, I do think that for a domain language, it's there to easily create unique IP and features. But I do think it's important to introduce other languages because with other languages, you get other libraries and you know folks coming out of uni who actually know these frameworks. So I, abso- I absolutely agree with Fastly and Varnish will introduce um, other language support uh, next year. Now, I've, I've promised my CEO <laughs> that I would not trump these languages. I'm sorry. But um, you know, as as soon as I can talk about it, believe me, Tommy, I'll call you and Quentin and we'll have a chat. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Any follow up there, Quentin? Well, I appreciate, Frank, you telling me about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. You got to do a, a nice uh, a nice headline for us and showing me a bit more of the roadmap as well. Just a general kind of varnished roadmap. I was wondering if, if you had any any more you could talk about that or is, you just, is it still very vague? It's... It, it is starting to uh, solidify. Um, you know, stay tuned for the beginning of the year. I promise uh, sometime 
um, in, in the first part of the year, we'll be chatting. I am sorry. <laughs> well, that's a commitment already, Frank. Q1. Okay. You know, yeah, I owe you a pint. We'll after it. Yeah, uh, you, me, and Tommy, we can talk over a pint on this. No worries. Uh, absolutely. Um, something else I wanted to touch on, maybe a bit more related to the um, the efficiency records. Yeah. It's something that you kind of you talked about, and I, I wondered if you could you could uh, expand a bit more on that. But you what what shocked me when we were talking, and yeah. you said a few times, "Oh, it was." We just had a conversation. We had a few get-togethers, and it was done. And obviously, it was a bit longer <laughs> than that between you, Intel, and Supermicro to, to get it done. But I had kind of started with that in my head. I kind of ran with that. That was my headline. Yeah. Two weeks to do it. And we talked, and it was a bit longer. But something you said was basically this idea that everything is so fragmented, the industry is so fragmented, that it basically just getting together and talking and working together made everything work. So just could you just go yeah. talk a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. It kind of goes back. Sorry, I'm going to sound like a dinosaur. I'm, I'm sorry, Tommy. But, you know, I first started playing with the Unix frameworks back in the uh, mid-80s, right? So I've been working on the operating system for a while. But back in that, those days, before Linux, right, somebody like Sun Microsystem, you know, HP, you know, whomever, when you built a system, it was tested end-to-end, right? So the CPU people talked to the system architecture people, talked to the kernel people. So everything was tested uh, through and through. I think one of the challenges in the industry when you've moved to Linux, right, where everything's, you know, fragmented, the operating system, the CPU, and the, and the system itself, is um, just what it takes to tie these pieces together to get the performance we're seeing today. So when we met with Supermicro and Intel, we, we sat together and kind of, you know, put the band together and looked at all the pieces in the end. Um, we were fortunate in that the foundation of Varnage itself in the beginning was probably 10 years ahead of its time in the way it was created as a software stack. So what we discovered is um, as long as we had hardware awareness through the operating system at the software level, we could more efficiently schedule work, right? I mean, it's literally that simple, right? Getting together and talking just like the old days, making some, you know, incremental changes to actually you know, get these type of performance figures. So it's good for the industry. So I'm hoping going forwards that, you know, we do recognize this. Um, in telecom, for instance, or even in cable, there are central uh, entities that actually do benchmarking and testing. This is why um, working with the folks who are doing the greening and streaming is important because we can actually set the standard we measure. Because as you guys know, we're gigabits per watt. I've seen watts per gigabit, <laughs> right? So let's kind of decide the benchmark Let's decide what we test and let's all work together as an industry to, you know, continue, you know, um, trying to be a little bit more efficient, right? At least from a sustainability perspective. It's low-hanging fruit, but it's good for the industry, right? Especially with this CAGR to just try to protect the business model. And as you brought up, Tommy, you can see the challenge there, right? There's, there's entire swaths of people who got in years ago who've decided just uh, to pay for the technical debt. Right, the cost of change is too high to stay competitive. No, just kind of speaking to what Tommy mentioned earlier and what you were just kind of saying here about and this idea of fragmentation, do you think that Varnish kind of has an advantage then because of this partnership with Intel and Supermicro that, any, that because of that, that's why your record hasn't been beaten because of this? I, you know, at the end of the day, I think it, it's probably more tied to a combination, right? So it's foundational work. You know, Varnish as an open source framework has been there for 13 years. That is, and as open source, you get the benefit of crowd testing, 
right? So we have generations and generations of, of crowd testing. Uh, the, these other frameworks are newer, right? So at the end of the day, I just think we have a head start just in the, in the quality of the stack. But, you know, keep in mind, you know, Intel, Supermicro, all these other players, they're open, right? So I think at the end of the day, we'll see a lot more parity and performance over time. And then we can go back and focus on the customer. But the base thing, and, and, and Tommy was pretty funny because you really woke me up, right, in, in Huntington. I was like, wow, I need to go back and, and, and pivot on this performance figure and see with software what we can do. Because I used to be an old school kernel hacker, real-time operating system kind of guy, high-performance computing guy. So let's just apply the basics to what we're doing and see where we go. Now we know. Um, I'm glad you mentioned beer. Because uh, a lot of our listeners might not know that Varnish actually brews its own beer. Oh, <laughs> we do. And um, there is a, yeah, it, it, it is published. I mean, if you guys are coming up to, a, you know, Oslo, I know it'll be in the winter, but we'll get together and have a meeting and actually brew beer together. So I'll make sure you guys get an invite. Now we're talking. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. So, um, I mean, go, going from kind of partners to kind of competitors in a sense, you know, okay. I, I know that Varnish Software is a member of the Streaming Video Technology Alliance. However, what I gather from past conversations is that Varnish has kind of been lukewarm, I suppose, on open caching. So, I mean, do you see open caching fundamentally as a threat to business? To, to the traditional CDN business model, as some traditional CDNs have. I mean, and, and in a sense, is there kind of a, a knock-on effect from the standardization of caching policies through these initiatives? You know, uh, the open caching is built on the IETF CDN interconnect metadata model. Or do you see that as complementary? Because I understand that Varnish could implement open caching APIs on top of your stack, but I understand that you haven't yet done that. I think, once again, it just ties to, you know, we're listening to the customer voice and we build features that the customer asks for. Um, just to be honest, we're not really seeing a high demand for this right now um, for open caching su support. We are engaged and actually um, we're going to look a little bit harder at this again. But it, it is interesting. The, the ask for open caching support has declined, right? So especially I, I can't say which key customers but the focus has been more in other domains, um, once again, including efficiency. That's interesting to hear that from an SVTA member. Whenever I've spoken to SVTA members, the, it's all been very positive in terms of the momentum around open caching. It's only the non-members that have said the opposite. I conceptually, I like the idea. You know, Keep in mind, I was in cable, the CTO in cable. And at Cable Labs, we tried to set frameworks in a very similar domain back in the 2000s, right? So, so the business case makes sense um just from a prioritization perspective you know we have finite engineering resources and you know i you know we have to hit what our customers are are, are asking for now mm -hmm. yeah i mean, someone recently described open caching to me as basically open connect netflix open connect but for everyone do you agree with that um for me, it's an open foundation where you can use a, a single way to publish and manage CDNs across um, and just open this up, right, into an open marketplace. It makes a lot of sense, right? I think it creates opportunities for a new industry, maybe even helps with the cost dynamics and helps the customers. But, um, you know, let's see where we go from an SVTA perspective. For, for, for me, once again, 
we have things on our docket that we've promised our customers that we need to get out of the factory. Sure. I think, yeah, I mean, the whole strategy of just having caching nodes in, in the network a la Netflix, Open Connect just, just makes sense. It's just in terms of the APIs, the billing API, notably. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, yeah. Well, that's where it comes into. You, you have to rate and bill just like you do with roaming, right, which is very complicated. Um, I do think especially with the advent of getting deeper, right, and more people bringing up edge caches and maybe wanting to sell edge caches as a service, right, then, you know, opening up to a common framework to actually, you know, publish, right, in a marketplace makes sense because you could have premium charge the closer you get to the customer. But once again, we have finite engineering and you know we have stuff you have to get out of the pipe. Okay, on a final note, I just want to go off piece and circle back kind of to where we started, which is your personal career, which according to LinkedIn, this began in 1985 as a US Navy diver. That might come as a surprise to some listeners because it certainly did for me. So can you tell us a bit about how uh, this career starting point came about and how this eventually led you to then dive into a career in software engineering and then, then eventually into C-suite territory? Yeah, well, keep in mind in the States, right, you know, education is, um, you know, not really publicly funded. So you can trade military time for uh, university time. So it, oh. it was different, though, because I had done most of my engineering degree before I went into the Navy, you know, threw on a saturation rig and did all the Navy diving stuff. So I kind of put my brain on hold, just went out there, <laughs> did my job, then went back in. Ironically, um, I had a desk at the University of Southern California. Um, a lot, if you look at USCISI, you'll see that TCPIP, DNS, a lot of these frameworks actually came from the office I was lucky to work in because we were one of the first ARPA nodes. But they kept my desk. So when I got out of the Navy, I basically left the Navy behind, left my uniform and jumped right into the desk. And the rest is, the rest is history. So there you go. I just had to pay for school. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where it all started. Yeah. Okay. That's um, all we got time for this week then. Frank, thank you so much for your time. I know you've been very busy, been all around the world. You just got back from Tokyo. Yeah, Singapore, so, Malaysia, Indonesia. Yeah, a lot of good stuff going on. Wow. <laughs> okay, thanks it's again, Frank. Been, and been a pleasure. We'll be back next week with another guest episode. So, yeah, thanks everyone for listening and cheers and probably see you at NAB, Frank. I Absolutely. don't think I'll be going to the States anytime before then. Uh, I'll catch me. I'll, I'll catch you guys for then. I promise. I'm doing some more university in the UK, so I'll try to buy you guys a pint. Okay. Awesome. Sounds good. Look forward to it, Frank. Okay. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Take care. Uh, uh, cheers. Bye, guys.